I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. Paul! Hi! (laughs) Hey, Paul, you feel like a winner? (laughs) Well, do you mean personally? Because no, I've got a little case of Charlie Brown syndrome. But do you mean economically? Then uh, Professionally, economically, yes. Uh, Yes. Why? What's going on? What's going on this year? Well, you know, I mean, it's always a complicated question when you talk about economics, right? You always have to acknowledge that the system is, uh, in some respects, failing a lot of people in terms of housing, in terms of costs at the grocery store are still too high. But when you look at where we were just three years ago when the pandemic was underway and all these people were unemployed and we weren't sure how or if the economy was going to rebound from that, really, we are in the middle of one of the most remarkable economic recoveries that this nation has ever had. And I mean that literally. I'm not being uh, hyperbolic here. (laughs) Well, I'll do you one better, Mr. Sunshine. If you look at where we were just one year ago, Mm -hmm. when eminent economists like Larry Summers were predicting a 100%, oh, well, he never said, well, who was it, Bloomberg? Bloomberg, Bloomberg. a 100% chance of recession within the coming year. Uh, Spoiler alert, it didn't happen. Yep. And Larry Summers was, I think he got up to maybe like 50 or 75% chance of recession impending right around the corner all year. Right. Predicting and, and telling us that uh, we needed two years of 7.5% unemployment to get inflation under control. Again, yeah. didn't happen. Right. And, and, and to put that in perspective, that's tens of millions of Americans who would not have work for years. Right. Months up to years, uh, depending. All year, we've had these doom and gloom predictions of recession that was always just around the corner. It's always right around the corner. But at the same time, when you look at what I think is the single most important metric of how the economy is doing, which is uh, workers, how are workers doing, right? Americans were employed and wages were going up faster than inflation. So paychecks were growing higher than those grocery store costs. And especially wages were going up at the bottom of the income scale, which is exactly what you want to see. Uh, We saw near record compression between the lowest earners in America and the highest earners in America this year, which is, to my mind, uh, one of the most important things you you can ask the economy to do is to bring that raging inequality a little bit under control. Now, granted, we are working from like 40 years in the hole. uh, (laughs) So so there's a lot, we have a lot more to do. We have a lot further to go. But by most economic metrics, the economy has been pretty great this year. And I think just as importantly for us on this podcast, it hasn't been great by accident. It's uh, been great because, uh, at least partially, due to policies uh, that have been implemented under the Biden administration as part of their Bidenomics agenda, which is, quite frankly, a middle-out agenda. So do you think we need to take a minute here, Goldie, to sort of parse those two things out? Like, we don't we don't want to use Bidenomics and middle out interchangeably because there is a distinction, right? So, in fact, it's funny. We're recording this uh, the morning of December 8th, which is the morning that Nick Hanauer's uh, most current piece in Time magazine 
uh, has come out and titled Bidenomics is Real Economics. And uh, in this piece, we make the argument that there is a coherent economic philosophy underneath Bidenomics, uh, which is largely middle-out economics, and that essentially uh, you can think of Bidenomics as a policy agenda that is based on middle-out economic theory, and this contrasts very nicely to the Reaganomics policy agenda that has dominated politics and policy for the past 40-some years, which was based on a trickle-down agenda. That middle-out is to Bidenomics what trickle-down was to Reaganomics, and that, in fact, the Biden revolution is as real and as consequential as the Reagan revolution that preceded it. That what we are seeing now is a paradigm shift in how we think about, talk about, and manage the economy that acknowledges that, in fact, as Biden has said repeatedly, the economy grows best from the bottom up and the middle out. That prosperity does not trickle down from the top. And we have 40 years of empirical evidence to prove that. Right. And while Goldie finally takes a breath, I just wanted to say that uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's important to not just talk about how, uh, you know, talk about the grand scheme of things, but to talk about how these things are actually playing out. So I've been looking back at at the year in review. Um, I've been doing a little bit of research in 2023 in economics. And it's funny, there are some things that happened this year that I completely forgot about. Uh, the SVB bank collapse was this year uh, mm-hmm. and uh, several mid-sized banks that collapsed. And that was sort of the beginning of the the, the doomsaying that happened this year was uh, people thought that the economy was about to go into another great recession, which didn't happen in part because the Biden administration found buyers for those mid-sized banks that collapsed, which calmed down Wall Street, which uh, eventually, you know, saved the economy from a, a potential bank collapse. We also had uh, skyrocketing egg costs this year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the beginning of this year when when the cost of eggs doubled, uh, even tripled in some metro areas. Of course, that was used as an example of how inflation was going to continue to skyrocket out of control when, in fact, it turned out that it was actually just a case of price gouging. Right. And in fact, in, in Washington state, the attorney general has uh, achieved a settlement with egg and chicken producers in which they're going to be sending checks to hundreds of thousands of America, of, of Washington households in compensation for for that price gouging. Yeah, and uh, and also a uh, federal court just last month uncovered decades of price fixing on, on behalf of uh, chicken producers. Uh, they were colluding to wipe out competition in the market and to raise prices. So, you know, we started the year really concerned about whether inflation would continue to rise. And at the end of this year, we've got a much clearer picture that a lot of those prices that we are paying, uh, higher prices that we're paying at the grocery store, are in fact just greed. It's not going to to increase costs or to fix supply chains. It's just going to increase quarterly profit margins and uh, probably eventually fund stock buybacks. Yeah, I mean, come on. How else are you going to pay for all those uh, stock buybacks if you can't fix the price of chicken, eggs, and everything else? (laughs) Yeah, but I could complain forever. So uh, I think we should look at some of the highlights of the year. 
And I think maybe one of the best places to start was in President Biden's uh, State of the Union this year, which I thought was a, a particularly strong State of the Union. You don't see any speechwriter will tell you the State of the Union is like the most feared assignment in the White House speechwriting <laughs> pool uh, because it's just a list of things and it's not particularly uh, inspiring, right? It's it's not quite like a budget, but it's it's a, a right. set of priorities, and uh, it's it's just hard to be inspirational or moving in that. Uh, in that space. But I was pretty inspired by the the State of the Union because uh, Biden was talking directly to American workers, like he was directly addressing them and talking about how he was going to help the economy grow for working American families, uh, which I think has not happened in my recent memory anyway. Right. And, I, and again, I think getting back to, you know, what we talk about in the Time magazine piece today, what he's explaining about Bidenomics, about uh, middle-out economics, is uh, really it's this story about cause and effect. The old way we thought about the economy that justified the trickle-down policies was that the economy basically grows when wealthy, when people invest in creating jobs, when the wealthy invest their capital, you know, the job creators. Right, and so right. our policies in the past had been focused on enabling job creators to invest their money in creating jobs and eventually the benefits of having more jobs would trickle down to everybody else. And what Biden relentlessly tells us and which he tells us in the State of the Union is that no, no, it's you got cause and effect backwards. That in fact it's the middle class that is the primary cause of growth. That when the middle class does well, everybody does well. And so he outlined an agenda for investing in growing and improving the capabilities of middle class Americans. And so what does that look like in in action? What does that look like in terms of policy? Right. So we've seen the policy very specifically. And again, the Biden administration has been clear about that, that there is a uh, that there are these pillars of Bidenomics. One of them is investing in America. And we've seen that most clearly in the uh, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, we've seen this. And so, again, we're going to talk about a, a, a really important departure from orthodox economic thinking. One of the core arguments of trickle-down is you want to get government out of the way, that government spending and investment is always less efficient than the market, and that when the government spends money, when the government tries to invest, it crowds out private investment. But that's not how the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act uh, were intended to work. What they're doing is investing in things like um, semiconductor manufacturing and green technologies uh, in the hope of attracting more private investment. And we have seen exactly that. We have seen hundreds of millions of dollars of private investment into uh, semiconductor manufacturing in the United States. And this is real. They are building those plants now. These are jobs that are created now, first in construction, and then later in manning these plants. And this has happened before any of the CHIPS Act money has actually been spent. It has simply been the promise of uh, that government investment and government subsidy that has attracted uh, the private investment. So it's uh, proven to be, rather than crowding out uh, private investment, it has crowded it in. 
And that is very different from the from the policies of the past, which have been, you know, maybe we'll give some tax credits uh, uh, after the fact. Another pillar of Bidenomics, and again, this is according to the Biden administration, is this focus on empowering workers. And uh, this is really important because we've seen uh, two different economic theories operating at once over the past couple of years. On the one hand, you have the Federal Reserve, uh, which has been working as hard as it can to disempower workers. That sounds cynical, but let's be clear. That is the economic theory behind raising interest rates. It's not just to make it more expensive for consumers to buy stuff by you know, increasing credit card and uh, mortgage interest rates. It is mostly to slow the economy by decreasing investment in expanding jobs, you know, building semiconductor manufacturing plants and hiring more workers and so forth. And the reason why you want to do that is this idea that inflation is largely the result of a wage price spiral, that when wages go up, inflation goes up, and the Fed has always uh, preferred to uh, have uh, low inflation than low unemployment, regardless of what its actual mandate is. So the Fed was raising interest rates in an attempt to raise unemployment to reduce the power of workers to demand higher wages. That is the core mechanism uh, through which raising interest rates is supposed to bring inflation under control. At the same time, we have the Biden administration uh, spending hundreds of millions of dollars investing in creating new jobs and in trying to uh, build new manufacturing plants and expand these industries. So they're working at opposite ends, and it turns out that the uh, Biden administration has been much more successful on their part than the Fed. Let's be clear, inflation has come down, uh, but the Fed's proximate goal of driving up unemployment never happened. So we have gotten disinflation at the same time. Uh, in fact, I think just this morning, the November jobs report came out and uh, the unemployment rate dropped a tick to 3.7%, which let's be clear, historically, is just to have it under 4% for so long is just unheard of. It's uh, truly uh, amazing. And the third pillar Again, I'm sorry. I am taking breaths here, Paul. It's an old radio <laughs> trick that you can breathe and talk at the same time. Uh, the third pillar is this focus on competition. And you see this in the administration's 180-degree turn on uh, antitrust enforcement. We are seeing the executive branch for the first time in 40, 50 years uh, really working to prevent mergers and acquisitions in ways that are anti-competitive. Again, under the old Reaganomics uh, trickle-down regime, the thought was, well, uh, if a competitive market leads to uh, combinations and monopolies, well, that's efficient because you get these economies of scale. And our focus should be on, uh, above all, on promoting economic efficiency, that when the economy is operating efficiently, everybody benefits from it. And Bidenomics has a very different take on that, and that is um, competition uh, is always 
more important in the long run than these uh, so-called deficiencies and that we should be regulating the markets in a way that keep them competitive and prevent large players uh, from dominating and being able to do things like, I don't know, just hypothetically, Paul, uh, fixing egg prices. So yeah, I just want to go back and uh, fill in some of the some of the gaps there, Goldie, that you left. <laughs> <laughs> because those we we often think of pillars as like some sort of uh, as three distinct things that don't cross contaminate, right? The important thing is like investing uh, in in building semiconductor factories and in creating jobs and, and infrastructure. A lot of those policies incorporate the advancement of things like providing free or low-cost childcare to the workers, right. right? Benefits for the workers, higher wages than are, are standard in their communities and things like that. So that's also empowering workers. So I don't want people to think that these things are, are three disconnected things because when you invest in America, you are empowering workers, especially when you have smart policy that is written, you know, built in from the start with workers in mind. Yeah, I think, and it's it's important that you bring up that that uh, the childcare issue because Biden was roundly criticized for you know like I, I think the term was piggybacking childcare onto the Chips Act as if bringing right. uh, semiconductor manufacturing back home has nothing to do with uh, creating good jobs for working Americans. Uh, that they're totally unrelated. Why would you dare attach the two together? And so you're absolutely right that all these pillars, it's uh, its a nice way of uh, dividing it up in an outline on a document, but in fact, they're all working together. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I this is this is a trick I've learned uh, that economists tend to use is they, they strip these things out and look at them singly, right? They want you to believe that raising the minimum wage will raise your costs and, and cut jobs, uh, which it doesn't. But, you know, as we learned during the pandemic, right, that if you don't have childcare, then you don't really have a working economy because Americans <laughs> have to take care of their kids and they can't go to work. So all of these things are are connected. And we finally have a policy that is like uh, nuanced and thoughtful enough to address all of these things at once so that, you know, the companies can make money and make their products and, you know, make their semiconductors and distribute them without, uh, you know, supply chain snags. And the workers are making money. And, and this is all this is all part of the same piece, because as we, you are so fond of saying, we all do better when we all do better. So it's kind of impossible to, you know, to talk about the year in economics without talking about the labor of it all, the uh, the hot labor summer that eventually turned into a hot labor fall. And uh, I think we're currently in the middle of a hot labor winter. You know, I think one of the most striking economic images of the year was was President Biden walking the picket line in September with the United Auto Workers. Uh, that's the that's the first time, at least in modern history, that uh, a president has so overtly sided with striking workers. Um, right. And he got a lot of heat for that. People said it was unpresidential and that it was unbecoming of him to take a side in, in this strike. But I think that it was actually a really consequential moment, right? The workers... To be clear, the workers won that strike. Uh, the workers, <laughs> the workers got a forty uh, percent raise. They improved working conditions. They reversed a, a plant closure. They made all these incredible gains uh, that more than made up for the losses that they've suffered since the Great Recession, when they had to like take a pay cut to save their companies from from going under. Right, which which was pitched at the time as temporary. Oh, until we get back on our feet. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they got back on their feet this year and uh, through no help of their employers. And so we've seen strikes in in places that they they don't usually happen, right? We've seen uh, doctors go on strike to protest both low wages and low staffing in in COVID. We've seen hotel workers in Los Angeles go on strike. Uh, We've seen Hollywood screenwriters and actors went on strike and specifically they wanted restraints on artificial intelligence, which is sort of encroaching into their field. And, and they made some important strides. They, they got their, their, they got the big studios to admit that artificial intelligence isn't labor, right? That, that no artificial intelligence will ever be credited with writing a screenplay. And I think that's, that's something that's actually going to play out across a bunch of industries uh, in the next few years. It was a major gain for workers. These aren't just gains for unionized workers. They're gains for non-union workers as well. Uh, In an economy where only 8% of uh, private uh, sector workers are unionized, uh, we saw specifically and most dramatically with the uh, auto workers strike that after the big three automakers settled with the... um, uh, with the unions, the non-unionized companies, uh, Hyundai, Toyota, Mercedes, etc., cetera, uh, they granted similar gains to their workers, uh, obviously, because otherwise they risked losing their workers to uh, the unionized factory. So everybody benefits when labor does well. And it just illustrates one thing our um, benevolent overlord Nick Hanauer always says, which is, is that employers don't pay you what you're worth. Uh, they pay you what you can negotiate. And that's why empowering workers is uh, such an important uh, part of the middle out and uh, Bidenomics agenda. You know, so finally, uh, I think in conjunction with all of these uh, big middle out gains that have been made this year, both from the Biden administration and labor unions and just uh, workers benefiting from a really strong job market, there has been a bunch of research this year that has that has gone a long way to proving that middle out economics actually works and that trickle down economics does not actually work in terms mm-hmm. of growing the economy. The biggest uh, study this year uh, that I don't think got nearly as much attention as it should have because the media was so busy focusing on Larry Summers uh, yelling about a recession coming any minute now. There was a report by uh, Justin Wiltshire, Carl McPherson, and Michael Michael Reich that showed that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour didn't just not kill jobs. It uh-huh. actually created jobs. Right. right. Uh, and that's that's a really important distinction. We always knew that that was the case. We always knew that when workers had more money to spend, when restaurant workers had more money to spend, they would spend it in restaurants and create jobs with their spending. But we're finally, the, the studies are finally catching up to our understanding of the economy. And they are proving that middle out economics actually works in the way that we've said it does. Right. Again, as uh, as Nick always says, when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers. And let's be clear, most of the economy is in the bottom 80 percent of uh, workers. It's uh, the people at the top with all that money. They can't spend it all. Uh, it's impossible. You know, the our, our economy, 70 percent of GDP is consumer spending. So when you impoverish the majority of Americans, when you have stagnant wages, stagnant incomes like we've had for the past 40 years, uh, you are going to have a slower growing economy. But when you increase wages 
faster at the bottom and the middle, well, these people are going to spend most of that money, and that's going to be good for businesses in general, even the businesses who are paying higher wages. So after that litany of accomplishments, Paul, are you ready to declare victory? Have we won? Has this been the year of middle out? Well, I think it has been the year of middle out, but I think that we have a long way to go before we completely change the economic paradigm. You know, I don't want to I don't want us to uh, to die of uh, toxic positivity <laughs> over here or anything. So it's, yeah. it's you know, it's important to remember that, as I said, we have a long way to go. Uh, you know, we've got 40 years of damage to to repair before we can get back to, you know, the point where the American middle class was at its strongest. So there's much right. to do. And stories are sticky. Uh, we both know that as as writers. So, well, it's it's really encouraging to seeing that middle out narrative start to take hold and uh, uh, start to being used by uh, politicians and pundits. It's too early uh, to think that that we've won this battle. We need to keep uh, pushing to change how people talk about the economy, which of course is the whole purpose of this podcast. Exactly. So we'd like to, you know, sort of close out this year by throwing it to you, the listener. If you have any uh, stories of uh, middle out economics uh, that you think that we haven't talked enough about, if you have any questions for us, if you have anything to say about the year in economics of 2023, uh, we hope that you will, you know, either send us a voicemail or, or an email. We'll have uh, the information, contact information in the show notes. And since this is the uh, last episode of the year, uh, on behalf of everybody at Pitchfork Economics and uh, Civic Ventures, we'd like to thank you for listening, and we hope you have a very happy new year. We'll see you next year. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.